you guys, how are we all doing? Welcome to episode 34 of the Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile Podcast, um, as well as being the 34th episode, which is uh, not that easy to say. It's also the last one of 2017, so I just want to give um, a big thanks to everyone who has um, supported the podcast, let me know you've enjoyed it, everyone who's subscribed, I really appreciate it, it's been a great journey so far. Um, hope you all have a nice uh, Christmas break um, uh, hopefully some good New Year festivities as well but um, this podcast uh, is uh, a fitting way to end the, end the year because it's with um, one of Melbourne's top bass players uh, Jonathan Diamond um, born in Wales and then spending most of his upbringing in Brisbane um, Jonathan now lives here in Melbourne um, and in this interview we get to talk about his um, his bass journey where he begins on the trombone, um, his transition from playing fretless four string to a six string Warwick um, and what it was like to buy a Warwick back in 1992 I think it was in Australia so that's, a, that's an interesting little story at the top. Um, he demonstrates um, some of his practice methods which are really interesting um, he uses, uh, you, you will hear it in the in the audio, um, he uses a wood block with a kick drum pedal attached to it um, and that becomes his metronome or, or, or rhythmic pulse for whatever he needs it to be. So he demonstrates a bunch of um, exercises with that which is really fascinating and that's kind of tied in with um, his in-depth study of Indian classical music which we talk about. He's a, an accomplished tabla player um, and a student of the conical language so we have a fascinating conversation about that we also touch on um, his publications so he has, has a, a book published um, based Riaz um, he's got a, a CD out with his uh, current band Tripitaka um, he also dishes out some awesome advice for beginners right, right at the end pretty much at the end of the interview but um, it's worth sticking around to hear his thoughts on on what you should be thinking about when you're starting out on on any instrument essentially and then to to cap it all off he plays a beautiful solo piece at the end um so yeah um again guys thanks for listening let me know what you think um via email info at baselessonsmelbourne.com check us out on facebook and youtube all that kind of stuff leave a review wherever you can um hope you enjoyed this interview episode number 34 with jonathan diamond Hey guys, how you doing? This is Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and for today's player profile uh, interview I'm joined by Mr. Jonathan Diamond. So, Hi Craig, how are you? I'm very well. 
thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you around um, and to have this ginormous base with you as well. <laughs> it looks big when it's on someone else, if you know what I mean. It but for me, yeah, it's just part of my body by now. Yeah, but really? Yeah, like, you know, if my wife picks up my instrument or someone else, not that I let them, it's like, gee, that's a quite a big instrument. Well, it was too, it was too big to even fit in my... Uh, it didn't fit in your stand. In yeah, your stand. that's right, that's right. So, yeah, I don't know. You get used to these things. I've been playing this for so long I've even forgotten about it 91 I got this 91 yeah was that one of the early this is an early before they got famous Warwick before they got mass-produced Warwick yeah Uh, yeah so you you have to sell some organs I had to do a lot of gigs and I remember paying for the instrument. I'm not a gearhead actually, so it's kind of a weird thing to be talking about it, but it's a fine topic. Oh, it's here. And it's here, um, but it has a history and it's, it's, I guess it's related to me. Yeah. It's, uh, it cost me $5,400 okay. in 1991. Wow. I ordered it from Germany via New Zealand, which was the importer was through there and actually through Michael Zachariah helped me with that right who's of course a Melbourneite and I'm not a Melbourneite I was living in Brisbane at the time so yeah it was it was a lot of a lot of gigs paid for this and how long did you have to wait for it uh, about 12 months <laughs> <laughs> back in the day huh back in the day when you know you had to pre-order LPs so and that sort of thing it's, yeah. it's interesting because um, I'm sure a lot of people have been through that process of seeing a bass in a magazine or seeing somebody play it mm. on a video or something like being like that's the bass for me yeah but if you've never actually played it it's a weird thing it can yeah. be it's a bit of a gamble it you is know, a gamble i know friends who have ordered custom bases and stuff like that yeah. and got it and been like nah it's not it's actually not it's not for me so yeah how did you know that this uh, was i was, was lucky on this occasion okay um i was young and naive <laughs> uh and the inspiration for this particular instrument was <coughs> John Patitucci, who remains one of my <coughs> exemplars yeah. of the instrument. What, what is it actually? Sorry. This is a Warwick neck through thumb bass. Warwick neck through thumb. Yeah. So if you look at the back of it, you know, it's got the seven pieces all the way through. Yeah. It's not bolt on. Not, there's nothing wrong with that. I've got another Warwick that is bolt on. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was attracted to the six, pling, six string playing of John Patitucci. Of course, I saw the Chick Corea electric band, although that was highly inspirational as a young, budding, sort of Jacko modeled fretless four string player. So, my older bass is a Fender Jazz fretless. Right. So, my first <coughs> instrument, you'd say. And I still have it. I would have bought it today, but there's not enough room in your studio. <laughs> You've got seven other basses here. Uh, so, I pre ordered this yeah, from the catalog and from its reputation and from the sound, really. And I'd never played one. And I took, do you know Gavin Pierce? Yeah. Gavin Pierce and I were both basically learned bass together okay. in the con in Brisbane. Right. And he was a major on the instrument. I was playing trombone uh, in, in the classical degree at that time. But we played bass together, did duets and you know, compared transcriptions and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So he's an early inspiration as well, I suppose, because we, uh, yeah, we learnt together. Yeah, um, a bit of friendly competition. A bit of friendly competition never goes astray, especially in an institution. So um, I, because he knows so much about the technical side of the instrument. I yeah. brought him out to unbox the thing at the store at the time. So it's like, oh, where is it? <laughs> Unpackage the thing. And he checked it out and he gave it a bill of health, which okay. is, which is thumbs good. Up, like, thumbs up. But then I put <clears> my <throat> thumbs in between the strings and didn't know quite how to 
really come to terms with the instrument being a four-string player. Yeah, I mean, going from <laughs> four-string fretless to six-string yeah, Warwick yeah, thumb, yeah. you weren't into making life easy for yourself, were you? No, I, I kind of do that. It's a habit of mine <laughs> in life. Um, so, yeah, so, but I just take it along to, you know, rehearsals and ultimately to gigs, and I'd sort of do a bit of doubling, so to speak, on fretless four-string, and, and then I'd bring this one out for certain things, you know. Uh, you know, these are the kind of jazz gigs, um, mostly where the, the fretless four really is in its four, but also, you know, contemporary jazz stuff that I was writing. Yeah. And I started writing for the instrument and, you know, gradually, um, you know, got to know it. Still working on it, of course. It's a lifelong Ab- thing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but also, I've, I still work on the fretless four string. I do Indian music on that and various other things. So, um, so that's kind of the story of the instrument. It was a gamble. It paid off, I think. You know, it, it's it's a wonderful well, if, instrument. Well, you know, if you've had it since 1991. Well, I, I mean, keep on trying to buy another instrument, and I can't find anything that, that compares, you know? And so that's, like, I think, a good sign. Absolutely. It's well like made. I mean, it's travelled through negative 35-degree snowstorms in Boston geez. to Brisbane humidity, you know. Um, it's done everything uh, I could think to it, and it's it survived. Not only survived, but I actually think it's matured a bit. It's I'm sure it feels like home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the wood, you know, is matured. It's better. What All is the it? oil that's gone you know into the, the body? The wenge and the babenga, is African African hardwoods. Uh, it actually looks better than what it looked like in the catalogue when I purchased it. But that's always a plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from a couple of dings in the end, but you know, that's no one can see those. No, mojo. Yeah, that's right. Can we just hear a little bit of it? Yeah, absolutely. What? So you know, the feature about, about the um, the neck through design, of course, is the fact that it sings. You know, and for a sort of a a fairly soloistic, budding jazz bass player, that was a good feature, that I could play singing tenor melodies that I might have ordinarily played, you know, on my trombone. You know, you can do double stops and chords and, you know, jump between kind of the you know, almost sub-audio range that, of course, the five-string gives you uh, to these other sort of sonors, sonorities. Terrific sustain. It's it's still got a, a unique kind of attack. You mm-hmm. know, it's certainly not lacking in that department. But it's quite different to the bolt-on. So the irony about this instrument is it's called a thumb bass. Yeah. Yet my Fender Jazz fretless is a better slap instrument. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so the the th- I, I never really slap on this instrument very much. It it doesn't lend itself to that kind of sound. Um, the bolt-on performs much better. A wider sp- string spacing performs much okay. better. Shorter scale uh, length, I think. Yeah. So, you know, all <coughs> those things. For, for me, this made it a, a very versatile instrument for what I was doing. Yep. Uh, contemporary jazz. Um, you know, I started training in Indian music. Um, being the bass player in a band where there's no guitarist or pianist, um, you know, it gave me that ability to cross between you know, chordal and, and sort of functional bass kind of roles. Yeah. Um, it's unique singing nature for soloing and and also still with, a as I said, a kind of a unique kind of morphology in its attack, um, to, of course, still to play bass and bass lines. So, yeah. Um, yeah. They've still got, you know, plenty of grunt. No one's ever said it doesn't have enough grunt. Sure. Yeah. Those pick up slightly ang- angled. They are slightly angled, yeah. Right. I think yeah. they've maybe made them more so in recent years. Um... I saw the second iteration of the instru- this instrument like 
where Warwick did become, where it changed from the, the, from the sound of wood, which is their original slogan yep. back in the early 90s, to bass, amps and rock and roll, I think, is their current slogan. Mm. So they sell more instruments now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but back when they were the sound of wood, <laughs> no, I think the next version of the instrument was under the new slogan, actually had the, the same, same angling of the humbuckers. Um, but it did, they did make some design changes. And yep. in some cases, some improvements, <coughs> as they do, all companies do. Add particular things, take other things away. Yeah. Change this or that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I guess people that tinker with instruments do. Mm. So you spent most of your kind of um, musical upbringing in Brisbane? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Brisbane from age of five. Uh, trombonist from an early age. Composer, arranger. Um, and sort of like... Trombone from the age of five? That seems oh, no, like a... Uh, uh, well... A wheel, uh, quite a tough instrument for a five-year-old. Beg your pardon. I was composing from that early age. Okay. Um, playing recorder like every other school kid. But um, formally trombone from eight. Wow. Yeah. Um, I started with everything pretty early. Yeah. Um, I was playing professionally when I was 12. In and big bands with Was that because you were just super into it? Or was it? I was just super into it. Yeah. Um, it's nothing to do with talent. I'm not, I'm not saying... <laughs> no, it's not. It's no, not. but it could, it could have been like a parental push or... Not at all. My parents listened to music, you know, Welsh choirs and whatever else was on the radio. Brass bands? Yeah, not so much. I joined the Municipal Concert Band in Brisbane as a trombonist. No, it, it was... I guess it was a variety of things and also kind of an internal motivation because I had a connection with music. My, my older sister, my only sister, she's older, three years older, played clarinet. I guess this was a, the, the, the fortuitous thing that in my elementary school, in my primary school, we call it here, um, the, to get into music you had to be, it's very competitive. You had to be at the top of your grades and you had to, basically it was a competition right. to get in. And the music students uh, had this particular mm, kind of uh, attention uh, revere from other students and okay. and teachers and parents and like that sort of thing. The elite. Yeah, I guess in a sense, you know, I guess there are music schools, there are sports schools. I guess this was a kind of a more of a music school. This was in Brisbane. This was in Brisbane, and the and the music teachers were most excellent. So I had a good um, inspiration to get into the music department. I wanted to I wanted to play drums actually, like any yeah eight year old boy. Sure. Uh, but I was given the trombone just because there were more. <laughs> trombones and drum kits. Uh, looking back on it, that was a good thing because, you know, trombones taught me a lot uh, over the years about music, you know, sure. most of what I know from the trombone. Um, being inside ensembles, that you learn a lot from, do, from being right in the guts of an yeah. instrumental section. You yeah. know? Having to produce the sound yourself rather than being sort of inbuilt like the piano mm -hmm. and having to intonate like the violin. You well, know? yeah, I was going to say, you know, that, that transition from trombone to fretless may not have been quite so daunting. No, it wasn't. It didn't take long. <coughs> didn't take long to, you know, to be a beginner. No, it was yeah. pretty quick. So, um, so those things influenced me very much. Um, and I just practiced a lot. You know, I just practiced whenever I could. Yeah. You know, a kid in school had to keep logs of how much they practiced and you must meet, you know, 20 minutes a day or whatever. Your mum has to sign it off. Yeah, yeah. I would do two hours, Mum would just say, Same. just forge my signature, don't worry about it anymore. You're doing... <laughs> there was you know, never a problem in that department, yeah. you know. Um, 
So I love practicing, and that makes me extraordinarily weird, I suppose, but I, I, I don't have enough time to practice. Ah. And I, I, I'm of the belief that the more you know, the more you know there is to practice. And so, you know, life balances, family, work, do you feel like, Do you feel like there's more things that you want to delve into now than Absolutely. 10 years ago? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to retirement. <laughs> <laughs> so I can practice more. Um, but to what end? To what end? I mean, if you're retired. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is like the the, the music and the practicing is um, not necessarily, it's not just a, a career and a, and a thing. It's just no, no. who you are and what you do. Yeah, that's right. It's a continuous improvement. Yeah. Right? You know, music is scientifically proven, um, develops your brain. Mm. Your brain actually grows with it, you know. And uh, of course, you know, studies have also be made for youngsters and the improvements it has with everything from social interactions to mathematics yeah. or whatever, you know, that's all Absolutely. known. Yeah. But for, you know, an old man like me, um, it's, it's the joy of continuous improvement, problem solving, you know, setting up challenges, um, you know, keeping mind, body healthy, I suppose. And it's, uh, I do that through, a lot of it through music. Yeah. Um, Probably. I compose, so I, I write works that challenge myself and uh, put me in ensembles with others. Of yeah. course, it is not a lonesome task. I like improving with other people at the same time. Sure. So playing with a band, of course, is a wonderful, um, yeah, a wonderful gift. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's something that you know, hopefully, you can keep doing until the end. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. I've seen old. Uh, I saw Ustad Al-Raka, who was a famous tabla player, on his 80th birthday. No joke, it was like seeing a baby. Mm. You know, that amount of inquisitiveness and liveliness yeah. and discovery. Sure. And his hands were soft and agile. Yeah. You know, and it's a quite a different story to what we see so much in the news today about, you know, getting older is basically just entropy and just dying, you know? Yeah. People crumpling, not being able to move, not being hold themselves up, mm -hmm. you know? The uh, inactivity of mind with dementia as well, and all those things. I know there's some medical causes for some of these for things sure, too. Yeah. But um, you know, when I when I think about practice, I don't just think about running scales in my studio at home by myself. Um, which is why when I, I wrote a method book on bass about practice, I called it Bass Riaz, and Riaz is a sort of all-encompassing term from India, which means practice in a kind of a integrative and holistic. Kind of total way. Okay. Um, that seems like quite a huge theme to fit into a book. Well, that's why the book looks like this. Right. <laughs> uh, it's There's a few pages in there. There's a few pages in there. And look, I wrote that a long time ago, and it's just to support my own teaching. Yeah. Um, I started writing in India, obviously, so that's where some of the sort of philosophies sort of started germinating. Um, if I had time, I'd rewrite the third edition to a fourth or fifth now, but I'm writing a PhD at the moment and I've got a year left, so um, I've got my fair share of writing. One thing at a time. This can, this can wait another few years. Yeah. I did start writing another book, uh, actually on the topic of books, just solely about rhythm and sort of a, I called it internalizing time and it was just to try and, a bit like this, to document my discoveries at the time and help me with my own teaching sure. and sort of help teach me how to teach. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, make a systematic pedagogy out of uh, contemporary rhythm training. 
Cool. Um, but that's that's also behind the PhD at the moment, and that yeah. won't see the light of day until that's finished. Well, let's let's rewind a little bit yeah, and, and talk about um, you know picking up the bass at what did you say twelve? No, um, I was still a trombonist then. I didn't pick up the bass actually until late. I think I was in grade ten, which makes me about fifteen or something okay. at that time. At that point. So I was already performing professionally on trombone, right? Um, but discovered the electric bass sounds really through Jaco Pastorius. Okay, so that was the that was the thing. Yeah, the, the I can definitely paper. say that. And um, and who who turned you on to that? How, how did you discover him? Oh, look, I was playing in big bands and jazz bands, you know, by so night and the chicken. Uh, yeah, maybe. all those sorts of things. You know, his solo album, um, and then Invitation, the Life in Japan mm-hmm. album, is still remains an awesome, you know piece that everyone should have in the library, um, both from a arranger's perspective, because I was writing also, of course, this time, and I was mm. writing for various ensembles, including big band. You know, it's got very good examples of writing for the jazz orchestra yeah. in, in those albums collectively. But I'm thinking about Invitation particularly right now. Um, so, do yeah. you know if Jack would, did all the arranging and stuff himself? I'm or? not so sure that he did. I think he had help, yeah. Yeah. I can kind of hear a bit of imprints of various people, but I, I don't. I'm not qualified to say on record that it's this person or that sure. person. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, if it was all him, I'm. I'm. I'm not. I would be. I wouldn't be surprised because he was so musical. <laughs> True. You yeah. know, and he'd he'd lived with those bands and with horns and R and B ensembles for so long and so obsessively. Yeah. That um, I wouldn't doubt that he could write like that. Probably. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. And, and who best to know how to arrange that kind of material than, than him? You know? Yeah, exactly. Who, and we all have inspirations and guides <coughs> and mentors and, you know. Yeah. You've got Herbie Hancock playing in your ensemble. That's got to have an effect, hasn't it? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> the piano part. I mean, you wouldn't even write a piano part, would you? <laughs> you wouldn't dare? <laughs> no. Don't tell me what to play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, yeah. No, I'm sure, I'm sure he would be wonderfully collaborative. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're you're on the you're on the on the fretless, hmm. um, and you're playing improvised music because it seems like up until this point, you're mainly doing orchestral or or written kind of things. How did the where did the improvisation well thing kick in? I was interested in jazz from an early age. Okay, okay. My dad liked jazz. He's got a huge library of LPs mm-hmm. of the jazz. Masters from Louis Armstrong through Sarah Vaughan through he's really big into the MJQ the modern jazz quartet yep so that kind of chamber jazz that European sound um, as well um, so I was influenced by all of that um, I had particular people in my bands that also influenced me to uh, introduce me to a lot of other sounds like the ECM sound mm. and particular key artists that record on that label. Um, you know, I, I could list them all, but you know who they would be. But it's, it's a lot of them are not bass players. You know? Sure. And Eberhard Weber, of course, you know, is is one that I can name. But a, a lot of the recording artists, yeah, I don't really. If if they play saxophone, it doesn't make any difference to me. You know. Jan Garbarek and Yeah, all those people. You know, yeah. so there's a particular aesthetic in Jan Garbarek's sound that was appealing. Sure. You know. And he studied the Chennai from India, and I've studied North Indian classical music, and I kind of hear those kinds of influences. Yeah. You know? uh, so, 
you know, listening and all, absorbing all that stuff, um, I guess I became a kind of a multi-instrumentalist composer. And I, no, I wasn't doing so much orchestral stuff. In fact, as a trombonist, you know, the, the, the one thing you get really good at in an orchestra, of course, is counting bars rest. And uh, I wanted to put myself in the, in the center of the action. And even as a bass player, you know, step on some saxophone toes, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of sharing melodic role and all that kind of thing, or having ensemble without a chord player, as I mentioned before. So what I was doing was I was doing a classical trombone performance degree. Mm -hmm. So I did that for four years. But by night, I'd be a jazz contemporary kind of player, playing mm. in big bands. I played, I played a lot of cabaret, uh, all the shows that used to be so abundant at that time, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. I had four, four gigs a week, and that was, that was a normal week. It could be, could be more. Yeah, well. Um, so that's ultimately, that's the income from that I saved to go to America. And that's what I did once I graduated. Okay. Yeah. So I went to New England Conservatory, did my postgrad there in Boston. Uh, it was tremendously uh, influential on where I am now. Yeah. Uh, both as a sort of composer, performer, and educator. So postgrad yep. based in in Boston, United States. Uh, I mean, in terms of top, like. Oh well, I chose contemporary improvisation, and I mentioned the modern jazz quartet before. Gunther Schuller, who's kind of the person that coined the term third stream, uh, back in those early '60s kind of time when you've got classical and jazz hybrid musicians, you know, mm -hmm. playing sort of. Uh, you know, classical musicians improvising and jazz musicians, you know, reading, as I would say, fly shit, you know, <laughs> and the hybrid forms of, you know, highly, highly composed, yet also with improvisatory sections in. Yeah. That kind of field of music interested me greatly. And um, so it's kind of no accident, I suppose, I ended up studying in, in the town. In fact, the institute, because Gunther was a, a president right. of that institute uh, at eventually for my postgrad. And in fact, 10 years later, I went back to New England Conservatory to study again. So I've done two postgrad degrees there um, with a stint in Los Angeles in between just to kind of be in the industry for a while. So um, yeah, so that until uh, my return, ultimate return to Brisbane, which was in uh, 2000, and, um, Jesus, I've lost all my timelines now. It's confusing because I moved there twice, LA in between. I came back to Brisbane in 2005 um, and um, no, I came to Melbourne in 2006. That's when my son was born in Boston. That's right. So I went, I went Brisbane, Boston, postgrad, in, back to Brisbane, okay. Los Angeles, back to Boston, then to Melbourne. That's the order. Okay. It's been a long day. I've just examined like <laughs> a lot of contemporary scores this morning for assessments. So I've got like, oh my God. Uh, it's complicated, but I guess the, the thing that's inspired me along the way is um, uh, multiple influences, not just jazz, not just classical, but these hybrid kind of forms. Mm -hmm. um, a sort of a specialty in North Indian classical music. I've also spent time in India mm -hmm. amongst that, uh, training on tabla. And um, so the rhythmic forms that come from that uh, style of music, that genre, uh, has been tremendously influential on my composition and my performance on this instrument as well as, of course, tabla. Yeah. Yeah. What, what drew you to uh, the, the North Indian thing? Was it just, the, it seems to be you, you're kind of drawn to 
stuff with a lot of depth, like where you can really, where it seems like there's no end really to these. Oh yeah, they're eyeless. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. and and slightly kind of left of of center mm. um, genres and, and practices. It seems to be where you've kind of found your yeah your oh, yeah. comfort. Yeah, I'm not a mainstream bass player. Yeah. I'm sure I don't do many top 40 gigs but I did lots of top 40 gigs on trombone in end one sections of things so I've been there done that on that side of things I mean Uh, I'm sure you could if I wanted to but yeah certainly um, you know once again it was the sound so I mentioned the sound of Jacko kind of drew me into that world of electric bass and that approach Um, but the sound of tabla I mean literally it's sound is very inviting to start with Um, but then the language, of course, that goes with it, and very strictly is a language, mm. and there's you know quite a richness and quite a depth behind the language, and and to at once kind of be confused, but also know that there's a system behind what seemed to be chaotic in my first listen, um, like jazz, like just like jazz or anything actually, you yeah. know, anything that's that's really completely foreign, but has a history and a very structured uh, and worked out kind of language behind it. Especially when there's more than one person playing at once. I mean, obviously there's there's something going on. They're hitting things together. How is that happening? You know. So the inquiry began, and coupled with the sort of en- enchantment of the sound, um, and this of course best happens in live performance. And it was live performance that really clinched it for me. I was like, I have to learn more about this. So in my choosing a post grad school, I chose New England Conservatory because they have a North Indian classical. Uh, uh, sort of course in there, right? Okay. And you know, ethnomusicology is strong in that town generally, mm. but uh, specifically at NEC, uh, there's a whole body of teachers who um, actually have a connection back to Pune in India, in North India, uh, which um, kind of became like a sister town for those people, and that's ultimately where I was sent. Okay. You know, because of that connection with those teachers there. So, again, I guess it's it's looking back on it, it's no mystery now that I ended up in Pune. Because they were yeah. they were teachers who were trained by uh, teachers in Pune. How, how long were you there for? I only went to India twice um, in '96 and '99. Um, I did, I guess you could say, most of my practice in Boston. Um, the the study uh, stints in India were grant funded intensives uh, for one season each. So I went to winter and a and a sort of summer, um, and. Um, and I guess my application experience was mostly done in Los Angeles, where there's a huge pool of professional musicians that uh, many have trained at Alakaba Khan College in Northern California and have kind of uh, filtered down to uh, other regions of the state. And so there's kind of a network, there are schools, there are gigs, there are people that know the, in- the instruments and the music mm. uh, that are interested in contemporary fusions of of the classical and okay. other things, and that might want a tabla player for uh, some kind of recording session, you know, or you know, the wedding. Or I had a lot of students myself. I was teaching a, a large number of expatriate Indian musicians, yeah, as right. well as Westerners that had been influenced by uh, Indian okay. culture, generally speaking. So, yeah, a real melting pot in California, of course, and the and Indian yeah. thing is, is is part of that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Thinking of, of the Indian classical thing in, in, in America, one name that comes to mind would be Kai Eckhart. Yeah, right. Did you ever come cross paths with him? Or, yeah. Or? Uh, not personally. Well, I've seen him play, of course. Uh, we've 
communicated via the internet. Because he's got Garage Mahal. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Just when you're talking about the fusion and, and yeah. the and that's kind of like in my head that would be like a kind of Indian LA fusion. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Of that kind of. Yeah, it, it is. It is a sort of Californian Indian fusion of that. So, uh, Kayak is a, Kaya Eckhart is a wonderful player. Of course, I didn't tell anyone. He's fantastic at all he does. Um, I don't know the extent to which he's studied uh, a classical instrument like myself. Sure. So, uh, but he's gleaned a hell of a lot from mm. the style, and of course, uh, you know, they're not trying to be classical musicians. It's something else. You know, exactly. it's another new thing. Yeah. It's a hybrid thing. Uh, well, just in terms of, of applying those Indian rhythms and those long forms yeah. to to bass. Yeah. I yeah. Think. He does that. Um, like John McLaughlin. Yeah. John McLaughlin, of course, and of course, he's played with him, and, and yeah. McLaughlin's. An exemplar of the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what would be uh, like a, an example of how how you've taken that that time studying tabla mm. and the Indian stuff to to how it translates to your playing yeah. on on the bass? Well, I mentioned the word language before. Um, the great thing about Indian classical music, generally, both north and south is there's a very specific organized language of rhythm mm-hmm. I mean pitch as well but in the language in the rhythmic domain uh, so whether you learn tabla or not uh, you can ascribe lingual syllables to each and every sort of uh, rhythmic structure okay yeah? um, so it is very linguistic so uh, Phrases are broken down into syllables, which go together to form um, combinations that have a relationship to each other, almost like a poetic relationship. Yeah. So whereas. So you've got like letters, words, sentences, paragraphs. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the reason I think, um, or one of the reasons, um, a, a true Indian classical artist's rhythmic domain appears to be so well mastered is that they're a not thinking in little bits Mm. they're thinking in grand structures of related substructures you know Mm -hmm. Um, and furthermore that there's a rich i.e kind of long-standing tradition of compositions and almost formulaic approaches to improvisation that create in themselves a language you know a a syntax of parts Mm. So, sorry, that's getting a little heavy, but that's, I, I think that's kind of around where the essence of what we're talking about is. Okay. Um, and so to give you an example, whereas teaching a beginner, you might be at a loss because you're trying to say, oh, you know, you've got four, four, and you've got 16th notes, and therefore you've got four per, four per beat, and it's one and a two and a three and a four, yeah, and that tax on the R of three. Mm-hmm. There, <coughs> they just say, no, it's just a phrase. It's just, ta ta get a da just ta ta in a da and you just accent the da, you know. Uh, <laughs> just it, Really, it's just taught by emulation, of course, it's yeah. oral tradition. Yeah. And so you learn these words as syntactic modules that then you start learning how they fit together sort of in, a, in that kind of logic. Yeah. And then the improvisation, of course, is reordering the words to start with and then perhaps, you know, breaking a few rules and okay. then fixing it up later, yeah. wow. <laughs> you know. Uh, so <clears throat> I've been talking very kind of um, 
symbolically, I suppose, how it crosses. But these things have kind of deep-seated changes in how you think about music. Yeah. And then, then they translate. So I've done gigs with my band Tripitaka. Uh, and I remember once uh, the, uh, the people came to see it and they came and saw me afterwards. And we were expecting Indian music, to hear Indian music. You know, but can we get our money back? <laughs> no, it was quite like that. They enjoyed it, so but didn't, didn't we didn't hear much Indian influence. And to us, there's a terrific amount of Indian influences. All three of us in the band are, are trained, you know, yeah, okay. in the genre. But the influences are deep. You know, they're beneath the surface. Yeah. So it wasn't just like it's like a lot of fusion. To be frank, just kind of waves a flag and says, "Well, you know." I'm playing this little line, I'm playing this little artifact that's a cultural marker of that thing, so therefore I'm playing that thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like a token uh, surface. Yeah. So, you know, like the coffee ad, let's just chuck in some tabla so it sounds ethnic. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say those words, but that's kind of what the marketing thinking is. Yeah. They're just like little uh, tokenistic gestures. I mean, the bloody thing is in tune properly. It's a sample <laughs> or something, it's in the wrong key. And I yeah. Go, oh. um, so, you know, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal at all, but all three of us spent a lot, long time, you know, I've been practicing and studying this stuff since I went to NEC in 93. Okay, I'm, still, I'm a beginner, I'm an absolute beginner, right? Um, uh, but that means, that it means including practicing classical music and performing with classical musicians and, and working on what the essence of the thing is, mm. you know, trying to come to terms with that interpret it in my own of course western white kind of way sure you know how does it how does it work um and then trying to teach it to others which you know i'm proud to say makes you better of course when you teach you know you exactly, have to yeah. reinterpret it have new perspectives you have to be really good at the fundamentals and then better and better and better yeah uh so you know teaching of course is a is a wonderful wonderful thing um so yeah, so I, I guess the biggest influences are the, are the deepest influence because they're the most all-encompassing, yeah? But then I do write tunes that literally take a, a tub a composition mm. and just set each of the attacks to pitch mm -hmm. and then I put it on the bass. Okay. So it sounds like you want to hear what something like that yeah. sounds like. Uh, um, is one kind of, not a phrase, a group of phrases okay. that go together to make a statement. Yep. Bit rough at the beginning, a bit cold in here. Down a little bit? Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, easy crank. But you know, that's simply uh, the pitches, of course, were just random. Uh, they're, they're repetitive in the same way as the rhythmic units were. Yep. So when I said the group of five, dati datete, I played uh, a phrase. And then again. Yeah. Dati datete, dati datete. I did it twice. I had a sort of a contour, the kind of. It was like call and response, <coughs> and then data to kind of round it off. And then I did that three times.
three times things itself is very important. Yeah. Um, so this kind of holy trinity of repetition, of course, is kind of a, a universal, I think, across so many musics. You see it in blues. But also in, in, in orators. If you see someone making a ah, great yeah. speech, yeah, yeah. they'll say the same point three times. Yeah, exactly. Maybe with a little tweak just at the end, just exactly. to give you, yeah. Yeah, foil, foil your expectation, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's an age-old principle that happens in poetry, happens in yeah. all sorts of walks of life and art. And, uh, but the three times repetition thing, which is called Tihai in the north, Arudi in the south, is a whole field of play. Uh, you have this self-similarity where you have threes within th each of the threes, all sorts of things, all sorts of games you can play. It just almost seems like one of those fractal it's almost Patterns like that. Over it, just yeah. it will never end. Never ending. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it has a bit of that feeling about it. Yeah. So um, I guess the other thing about uh, this language is uh, a phrase like "dati date te dati date te." It's a group of five. It's not. It doesn't say anything about its division. Do right? you mean where the pulse could be? Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of this. this there's two sides to the same coin, isn't it? If you've got five things, they could be divisions of five or, or groups of five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you have this word, which is dati datete, but depending on how you're uh, conceiving it, it could sound very different. Mm. Yeah. Even equally spaced like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just played it in triplets, right, against the foot. But it could be. Couldn't it? Yeah. Which, of course, is what we call generally a quintuplet. Yeah. Five in the time of four semiquavers. Yeah. Is the understanding. Or it so, could be five eighth notes that you make. Yeah. It could be eighth notes. Up. It could be literally could be anything. Mm. Yeah. So again, the 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 <coughs> Indian language uh, contribution to my understanding of temporality is the systematic way that this is worked through mm. without assumption yeah so to give you an insight into my practice routine on this kind of type of thing i might just start with just might start with semiquavers let's say uh, and something that feels very four four-ish So it's very clearly as two bars of four four, you might say, semiquavers, something like that. And redistribute the accents from where they're harmonically implied. Harmonically implied with well, we're gravitating towards the downbeat and then the subsidiary beats two, three, and four at the moment, organizing the pitches around there. That's where we're hearing it. Mm -hmm. But um, I can change here. The reason I'm playing this stuff on my foot is because I'm forcing myself to manifest the change. Mm. I could just put on a metronome as well, which is far easier actually. Yeah, yeah. But to control it with my foot, this is a new training thing that I've been doing. Okay, so that puts a spanner in the works. Yeah. yeah as does. Enforce all these with accents. 
So along that same tack, we're talking about equidistant beats. I mean, beats are defined by equal groupings of semiquavers or pulse subdivisions. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Just change that up. Okay, so that was just fours. What do the other ones sound like? Well, the multiples of twos, of course, all sound somewhat similar and have a different, uh, a similar kind of relationship to the pitch material. And okay, so I didn't play through those, but the odd numbers are going to have some interesting results. Yeah. Ah, screwed it up. Screwed up the pattern. ending. I was concentrating on what I was doing rather than just going with the sound. Fives. Uh, yeah, of okay. course they were at odds. I have to play several times to make it resolve. Sevens. Etc, mm. etc. Et so you've kept that exactly the same. For now. But you've altered the underlying uh, beat pulse. Yeah, beat reference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you were to write that out, you could write it out, you know, all in semiquavers, but just change the meter, yeah. or you could change the number of divisions per beat and just call it the other thing. You know, this is the realm of metric modulation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so um, the next <coughs> thing to do, um, well, next thing I could have, would work on is different types of foot patterns okay. that um, weren't just beat around uh, equidistant beats, but were more around. Ostinati. So I might start with, say, a, you know, the the son clave, mm -hmm. which is you know a traditional form that everyone knows, and so that's an easy thing to kind of know if you're getting it wrong, you know. So. <laughs> this kind of thing. Okay. And then phase that. Ah. Yeah, so now I'm taking something that isn't just equidistant beat-like yep. thing, but it's an ostinato. It's kind of interesting because it's two bars along. Sure. And dropping it in different places. Yeah. And the, I guess one thing that may be good to, to, to dig up is what would, be the, what would be the underlying goal for this kind of practice? Just to improve your, your pulse or to come up with new compositional ideas or improvisation ideas or all of the above? All of the above can happen. Certainly, um, even the more contemporary Afro-Cuban bands aren't necessarily going to phase their clave. Mm. 
Like how practical is that, you say? But it's kind of like, well, now I've done the exercise, so yeah. to speak. Um, uh, I'm more robust with its usual placement. You know, its, its division has become more meaningful to me and it's sort of, it's patterning because I've looked at it from multiple perspectives. Yeah? Yep. Um, so that might seem like a very arduous way of going about better, getting better at playing 4-4, but it's actually nece totally necessary. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, met, you know, run through metronome practices where you have to click on 1-2-3-4 yeah. and then the click becomes the E. Yeah, exactly. One of the things. Exactly. A yeah. similar principle, right? You've read my book. <laughs> uh, so redefining the metronome, as I call it. Yeah, putting it in different places. Yeah. Keeping it a creative and active uh, member of your... Yeah solo band at home yeah, yeah. Uh, is terribly important. You all know the feeling, right? You're playing along and the drummer makes a mistake, maybe drops a beat, something like that, and, it's, and you're in this quandary, mm -hmm. right? Where do you go? <laughs> and of course there's, you know, there's professional aesthetic kind of considerations in this as well. But um, from a purely craft point of view, um, well, are you able to be the rock? Yeah, you know, and keep it stable. You will feel that gravity, you know, and that that tension between the two things. Uh, so it's it's a thing that we play with a lot in Tripitaka in my band is multiple layerings of things. We deliberately pit against uh, a common cycle of different interpretations of it, um, and enjoy the complex of simple things that arises. Mm. That's what we play around with a lot. So. You know, getting back to this exercise, the next thing I'd do would be change to change up the pattern correspondingly. I'd, I'd change this, maybe make a five version of that. Okay. And then keep this in four, you know, right. and yeah. do things that way around as well. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, five note pattern. Okay, so that's simply in five, I've got the five beat, but... Um, Groups of three against three. five there, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, really, the sky is the limit with this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, once again, the sort of the Indian thing that's happening here is I'm, I'm just chucking stuff at you, really. But I'm trying to show that there's a, there's a systematic sure. approach that you could yeah. you could do. You could devise uh, uh, a pattern, keep it common, change this incrementally, vice versa. And you could think about. You know, beat patterns. You could think about accents on this side. Yeah. Accents are a wonderful thing, and I, I, I toy around with those a lot. Um, I think they make for a really healthy kind of a range of control on the instrument. So, yeah. accent patterns on top of all of this are a really good thing as well. Yeah. And then, I mean, obviously, music is um, many many layers to it. You've got your rhythm. You even have harmonic rhythm, you know, the, yep. the rhythm with which the, the yep. harmony changes and melody and stuff like that on the top. So um, where does your harmonic development kind of come from or your, your harmonic voice mm. come from? Is it in, in any way connected to this or...? It's a good question. Um, of course, Indian music is, is fairly unharmonic from a contemporary perspective. It's, there's nothing happening really. It's modal. It's a yeah. fixed key, 
people play instruments and sing in the same key all their lives. Which I guess is why there's such a massive rhythmic focus. Yeah, and melodic focus. And melodic focus, yeah. yeah. So if you're including melody in this discussion, I would, I would have to say that uh, certainly the, the field of raga, of the melodic construction in Indian music, has also been immensely influential in my life since mm. you know, the last 20 years. So. Um, but there's a whole stack of other things too. Um, again, I grew up listening to jazz, so that language is a very big part of you know, how I express. Um, I, I'm quite comfortable with chord changes mm -hmm. and, um, and the kinds of formulas we hear in jazz all the time. Um, um, but there's other things too, you know, again, you know, I was classically trained, but also just by nature, I was interested in 20th century classical music. Okay. So I'm doing my PhD in composition at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I'm drawing on, you know, my lifetime of studying Western European art music for want of a better word, you know, um, some of my biggest influences, um, uh, the music of Stravinsky, Messiaen, Bela Bartok, it's a big one, um, but others too, and there's probably too numerous to kind of fall. So you're name. composing for orchestral ensembles essentially, or I mean... Uh, well, my, my focus is intercultural uh, music and inter contemporary intercultural composition. Right. So uh, needless to say, my group Tripitaka has sort of importance there. Mm. But uh, my next work, I'm writing a string quartet, uh, so yeah, I'm writing for, you would say, con uh, sort of established classical instruments, yep. but as well as hybrid ensembles. <coughs> I can write a piece for voice and accordion, electric bass, trombone and trumpet, you know, okay. uh, ensembles that don't really exist otherwise yeah. as <laughs> Apart from archetypes. Your, you know. from in your brain. <laughs> yeah. No, I have no intention of writing for orchestra. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like playing for orchestra. It's kind of outside my area of, of interest. I, mean, I love orchestral music, of course, and I listen mm, to it. Yeah, yeah. But um, as a composer, I've always written music from an early age that I wanted to play. You know, so well, I think that, that makes sense, right? You, why would you write something that you wouldn't want to be involved in? Yeah, exactly. You yeah. And, and, and you I always wonder so if some of that. these composers feel left out when they, when they hand it off and the orchestra goes and plays it and they, then it's no longer their thing anymore. I'm sure, I'm sure it's a different a completely different feeling, but the idea of going, here's my song, you guys play it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a little bit strange for me. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, well, the contemporary way is, you know, we find all the time, most, most performers that become to find their voice creatively end up writing something, you know, as a part of that expression of it. Yeah. Um, and I see it as a teacher of, you know, tertiary students all the time is, um, you know, the contemporary hybrid multi-instrumentalist performer, composer, songwriter is, well, there's one every second street, you know? Yeah. It's, it's the way today. But also I think composition is, for, for me anyway, it was just a kind of a natural thing that happened because I was fascinated with my instrument and I was exploring it, mm. you know, and I would find new sounds and I would play it over and over and eventually you come up with some kind of composition, yeah. you know, be it four bars or or yeah. an entire piece, and I think if you're if you're that kind of dedicated to your instrument and practicing, you will end up composing anyway. Yeah, I agree. I think it's inevitable. Yeah, yeah. And, and improvisation, you could chuck into that sentence too, probably. You know, if you're toying around with ideas. Yeah, what come? You know, yeah, you're improvising, yeah. and then yeah. it becomes a rip. <laughs> yeah, you know, some people call improvisation sort of 
spontaneous composition and all of that sort of yeah. thing. But yeah, um, yeah, composition. You know, I, I notate. You now that's how I've been trained, and that's the kind of music I I create. Um, Sibelius. I use Sibelius as a tool, yeah. but uh, I guess my point was composition doesn't just have to include notation in the Western in the Western way. Okay. You know, I know plenty of composers, great composers that you know ha- again have orally transmitted their work. Wow. You know, so that has also happened. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's you know there's all there's all types of composers out there, and uh, yeah. and one shouldn't uh, see themselves as not that person with the orchestral score and therefore not a composer because that's not the case yeah 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 so do you have a, a, a body of work do you have albums and releases that you've, yeah. you've put out there yep yeah, yeah I do and some are on my website so yeah. I guess you'll be sharing a link about that maybe at the end yeah um, if you're interested yep you can you can find out about me there um, but yeah I'm writing yeah, fairly consistently for the bands I play in yeah and right now it's Tripitaka and the trio and Have you recorded with Tripitaka yet? Yeah, we've got a debut album. Since you mention it, oh, uh, that was actually that was spontaneous plug. So this is our first album called Yakia, uh, released just this past August. Cool. Uh, oh, it's so it's the, just a few months old. Yeah, it's a few months old. It's still warm. <laughs> uh, it's on the Tall Poppies label, and again, you can find out about it on my website or at tripitaka.net. Awesome. Yeah. That. Yeah. Um, so it's got some of my compositions and some of Adrian Sheriff's compositions on it. Great. Yeah. Alt Control X. Yeah. Have you used that? I know you're a Mac. Is that a Mac? Uh, yep. Yeah. But Alt Control X, uh, that's one of Adrian's <laughs> compositions. <laughs> so yeah, there's a bit of a lot of humor in the band. Yeah. Paco. Paco. I'm Paco La Chia. Uh, Paco de La Chia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And there was this um, a live. I'm assuming you, you, know, you would all just record live in a room. We record live in a room. Yep. There's no kind of multi-tracking. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No worries. Cool. Um, and so, can we have a look at your this book a little bit? Oh yeah, bass for yes. Yep. Yep. The practice workbook for the mastery of the four, five, and six-string electric bass guitar. Yeah. So some dedicated things to. So just a small topic. Instrument. Just a small topic, yeah. <laughs> After that, it's like, yeah. Well, you know, it's, again, it's my first attempt at a book. You yeah. Know, um, and it was to support my teaching. Um, the chapters in there, I, I, I conceived this as something that would be okay for beginners to give them some sort of guidance in that very formative stage before sure. they make bad habits, perhaps. Yeah. But also have some professional pointers and things in there, you know, things that I value about being a professional and organizing yourself and yeah. interacting with others. You know, this is the Riaz part, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, um, you know, when I set up myself for a gig, I, I consider like spatial arrangement of things as really part of the performance. the performance, you know, and the stage is almost like a sacred thing in a sense, you know, it has, it has to be organized and mm. you have to feel comfortable there, you know, because you have to perform your best and hey, you've been practicing x number of months for this gig and you know you've got to be at the top of your game so you know talk about that and health and those sorts of things but it's mostly about the craft and technique of the bass despite those chapters yeah um you know everything from finding harmonics on a six string bass Mm -hmm. uh through to motivic development and just soloing on changes cool do you touch a little bit on on chordal playing and stuff as well i do yeah yep and once again you know the riaz way the indian way i've sort of done systematic notation of uh, 
you know, all chords and particular categories you can play on the sixth string bass. And uh, just like the harmonic chart, I suppose it's it's meant to be as thorough as I could muster at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it still stands as a reference for me for my own teaching. For sure. Yeah, despite the fact, as I said, I'd like to rewrite it. <laughs> um, I still think it's a worthy, <coughs> a worthy thing. And again, I learnt so much by doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, if people are watching this or listening to this, and they are beginners, what would be your, you know, words of encouragement or advice? If they, they might be you know, want to play R&B, they might be wanting to play jazz, they might be wanting to just play some country stuff, you know. Mm. What's what's the fundamental stuff that you, you reckon all these people should be trying to trying to lock down? Right. Um, philosophical time again. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the genres and the styles mean nothing. They okay. make no difference. In fact, you could be <coughs> playing saxophone too, you know, and I think this, I think the the universal constants are the same. So if you're embarking on learning an instrument, including the bass, um, you're going to be you're going to be learning how to learn, right? You're going to be ultimately you're going to be learning how to teach yourself. So you're going to be learning about yourself and your own idiosyncrasies and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be aware that there's a honeymoon period of learning an instrument. Let's say where it's all fun and games and discovery and new that will roll back eventually mm. and it will leave you to the hard yards. <laughs> leave you cold and alone. <laughs> exactly. And broke. Um, no, but it's very true. Like the, the enjoyment that I get from music um, is only after a lot of suffering. You know? Because... Practicing is hard work. You're moving into the territory of the unknown. Yeah, you suck. It's, you suck. <laughs> it's, you sound bloody awful. I don't want to listen to this video because that was awful, right? <laughs> and um, you're, you, you have to be failing exactly. half the time. Yeah. If you're growing, you have to be moving into the unknown. <clears throat> and if you stay within the comfort zone, you will stop learning, probably get frustrated and give up. Mm. You know, um, so it takes a certain kind of attitude and probably a certain kind of teacher mm. to help you through past that honeymoon period I just called. Um, and the reality is, it's delayed gratification. Okay, the, the 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 rewards are at the end of the miles you have to run. Um, that the more you learn the more infinite the thing opens up to be, to become. So it's easily become overwhelmed. Again, if you don't have the right self-guidance or guidance. Mm. Um, Especially with the internet at the minute. Oh, the internet is terrible. <laughs> you know, for that. School. My God, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, terrible but great at the same time, I was joking, you know. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and where was I? So. Yeah, so you've got you've got to, I guess, be resigned to the fact that these things are inevitable. Embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah, and because you're working on becoming a performer, you're no different to an athlete, or you know any number of other people, baseball player, whatever, mm. um, that is working on themselves, right? 
and that includes your mind and your body and your emotions and everything at once. It's all together. It's, it's all in there. It'll mm. all come out through your instrument, you know. You'll be uh, a, 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 a real performer of yourself, mm. ultimately, all the warts and all. So that's the philosophical kind of side of it. So I guess in saying that, a beginner, uh, to you beginners, I would say, yeah, find the right kind of people to surround yourself with, not necessarily just a teacher, but also peers, mm. you know. Um, in my youth, I learned a hell of a lot by surrounding myself by people that were better than me. Yeah. You know, I was the worst trombone, in the, trombone player in the band until I was the best. And then what did I do? I quit that band. I went back into the next band. I was the worst trombonist in the band, mm. you know, and then worked my way up. Yeah. And then again and again. So it was always this kind of progression. Sure. Yeah. Um, helped along by people that all had their kind of pearls of wisdom and it gave me experiences that helped me grow. So, yeah, that's the, I guess that's my advice. The, the inspiration is important. The perspiration is, <laughs> is even more. Um, and um, regularity, of course, is, you know... Absolutely. The whole thing about practice routines is a really important thing to kind of master. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's plenty to say about how to practice, but certainly the dedicated daily routine of it is important yeah. there's no shortcuts there's no shortcuts <clears throat> no there's no shortcuts yeah. and also you know you get you know, a few students who come who have been playing for maybe 10 years or whatever mm. and they've, they're just on a been on a plateau for nine <laughs> yeah right you know and and i think that's almost more of a difficult place to be in than a than a clean slate than somebody's just coming out because they've got nine years of muscle memory and nine years of all these things yeah. baked in. Mm. So what do you do in that case? In that case, well, you, you kind of have to be honest and say there's no shortcut. And it has to be any practice you do from now on out has to be mindful, concerted practice, uh -huh. you know? If you, and ultimately it comes down with how honest the student is with themselves. Mm. Again, students who come and then they never come back. Mm. You know, I'm sure you've had the same oh, as well. Oh yeah, yeah, they find it's too hard work. <clears throat> Well, you go, they come and go, they think that the teacher is going to be the magic fix. They think if mm. they go for a bass lesson, they'll come home and they'll be a better bass player. Mm. And all I'm doing is giving you the pots and pans and the recipe books. It's like you're a supervisor and stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just like, if, if you're truly committed, if you really want to make that change, as Michael Jackson once said, <laughs> take a look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but no, it's true. It's like, if, if you want to make that change, it's only going to happen with hard work. Mm. to unlearn and, and develop and the, the regularity thing yeah. is is the best way to make that easy if you know what I mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you know half an hour a day yeah if, if, if people can commit to that yeah then if you're it. working full-time and you can manage half an hour a day I'm sure you can manage half an hour a day yeah you know yeah, yeah, and you and that left-hand thing after four or five weeks six weeks yeah. will be you better know, a lot better yeah, yeah exactly and then and then if you can stick out that long you'll start to see the rewards and go oh okay mm. things are it's like going to the gym it's like exactly mm. what you're saying about an athlete whatever yeah you know it's like going to the gym you go every day great if you go once a week you're not really going to make yeah, much of a difference you know enough. and you know and i definitely need to go more than what i do but um yeah it's it's that um the the whole the rias thing that's the it's usually the the mental life challenges that 
that hold us back. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we see that with people at, uh, with people at the top of their games too. I'm thinking about Roger Federer. You know, we saw in Melbourne playing tennis. Yeah, beating more agile, more youthful. Yeah, tennis greats who are all masters at the top of the game. Right? Faster shredders. Yeah, but, <laughs> but his game is a psychological one. Yeah. You know, at that level, it's really the mind games that win. Because they all know they're playing Roger Federer. Yeah. And he uses that to his advantage. Well, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's, it's, yeah, you would use the word mindfulness. I know that's a buzzword these days, but um, there's another one. Yeah, it is. But deliberate practice, you might say. Deliberate practice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, using goals, using the step-by-steps, mm. and coupled with the sort of regularity um, and the persistence, yeah. But if you can find something that, you know, if you're one of those 10-year-old ten, bass players that kind of hitting kind of a, a blockage like this, uh, then Craig's advice would be also echoed by myself. I'd probably also say um, ear training, because we're talking about an oral art. Sure. I think your scope for improvement is relative to the amount you can hear and how much you're working on Mm. or how much experience you've had with actual listening. And once again, we said deliberate practice before, so deliberate hearing. I mean, mean, really hearing, really listening, actually listening is the word uh, in an active sense. Mm. Um, So uh, one of the one of the dangers, I think, of the base, and I've seen this in, in, in beginner players, yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, is it's actually an easy instrument to start off with, and that honeymoon period is really quite fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, and well, I mean, compared you... to trombone and violin and, and tabla, actually, for example, which sounds like this when you start playing it, it sounds like a brick on top of another brick. Yeah. Uh, the bass actually sounds great. Yeah. So once, you, once you've learned those four notes, you can do some gigs. And yeah, yeah. You're you six or eight months and you're, you're yeah. gigging. Uh, but then, as I said, you know, a couple of years down the track, and it becomes just as impossible as every other instrument. So you've, you've got to rely on some other things at that point. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, woodblock. With oh the, yeah, the jam block and the pedal. Yeah, with the pedal. Do you use that on, on gigs or is it more of a practice tool? I do. In fact, it's on the album, believe it or not. All right, cool. Um, Adrian and I both play uh, woodblocks and um, often in phase relationship. Uh, so it's, it's, again, it's one of the challenges we're setting ourselves in terms of internalizing rhythm. Mm. Um, we're inspired by a particular technique in Balinese gamelan, which is called Kodakan, which has interlocking patterns which often tile, they, they hit every uh, subdivision in a particular grouping. Okay. Um, and uh, so we've been playing along with that and we've been playing around with polyrhythm, of course, um, and uh, regrouping kind of like I was trying to do before with the scale pattern with all sorts of kind of pieces. Mm. Um, so Adam might be playing a groove like in 17 or something and putting a five pulse at the top and I'll then I'll start adding a three as well. So you're improvising like with it as well? Yeah. Wow. Well, this is the, one of the things about Tripitaka is what we do, which I've never done in another band, is um, we collide harmonic and rhythmic forms, often spontaneously in gigs. Yeah. So we've, we're developing a cueing system that says, I'm playing this, this form. Right? Yeah. Um, and then someone else will cue their form. 
and it might start a different place and it might be harmonic on top of that rhythmic form and so we've got new relationships forming all the time yeah so it's a bit like i don't know if i was playing stella by starlight and you started playing all the things you are but starting from the bridge in a different key <laughs> in five four instead yeah um now that's terribly some random things, some things would probably sound pretty cool well yeah you know and a lot of things probably not yeah and of course those languages aren't meant to sound good together so Again, we often, often these things are um, uh, united by the fact that they're cycles, the time cycles, so they're periodic in that sense, that they use additive rhythm, so it's a consistent addition of pulse, hmm. and also that they're modal very often. Yeah. Okay. Not always, but... So you, so you can avoid clashes? Sometimes. Yep. Sometimes, but other times not, and that's good too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is one of the fun things about because you know then no gig is the same mm. because you know you feel like playing this, you know, all the things you are in seventeen and someone else starts playing, I love you in four. You know, interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Super interesting. I get the um, uh, the jam etiquette. You know, I think that the idea of of. Um, doing these videos and also having played in, in countries and, and, and cities and stuff where people don't speak English and mm. all you have is, is music is a, mm. is, is a very uh, revealing and humbling thing to do mm. but it can also be some of the most rewarding yeah. um, where there's no word spoken and all you're doing is just using is listening and reacting mm. and then interacting yeah well it's a very authentic traditional social mm way of being isn't but it gets it's, it's harder and harder well I'm not sure if it's harder and harder but it seems to be difficult to find um, outlets for that in our current methods of, of teaching and, yep. and and society and stuff like that no, I agree it is harder I, I would well, certainly for me it's it's harder and certainly if you find because there's other piece of advice there's you find people that you gel with marry them Musically, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, you keep them in your band uh, uh, for as long as possible because it's a, it's a fairly rare thing. Mm. You know? And I look at my, my young years as, as being very lucky in that regard. Yeah. You know, having a, a great unit of people, again, around me that would stick around for a long time. You know, the bands that I formed from like my late teens, um, you know, yeah, they, they stuck it out for a long time. We, they put up with you for a while. Yeah, we put up with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it, it takes those years before you can really make big gains. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's true. And I, but I do agree. I, I think it is harder these days. Yeah. And uh, maybe the internet, again, has something to do with it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you're obviously, you know, a working musician and educator. Are, are you embracing... The internet and the the fact that you can have direct access to a fan in Somalia, for example. Yeah, or I mean, somewhat. I mean, um, uh, how to say this? Um, I have a website. I have two websites, including Tripitaka, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, in Los Angeles, I built another music business website when I had a company there called Sensound. Yeah. My wife taught beginner guitar, and we. You know, promoted ourselves. I ran a concert series, and I put it through the website, and I yeah. put on musicians, and was an age quasi agent type. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
uh, the internet's been a fantastic tool for all of that. Yeah. But um, I've also seen a di diminishing life scene for the music that you know I'm interested in that I play. Yeah. And in Melbourne or kind of. Well, I think it's everywhere because mm. you know I went back to Boston, you know, ten years after, and I saw a decline there. Yeah. I think it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> so th there's definitely been a change. Uh, technology generally has empowered people a lot, but also I think has caused a lot of confusion between kind of just dissemination of knowledge. Like you can download everything, right? You can have your entire library right there, and download another one tomorrow, you know. Yet it doesn't translate, you know, from that just stream of information to actual experience, mm. you know, um, and, and that, that's a social experience as well as a musical experience, you know. So no, I think it is shaping the way we um, communicate, the way we address uh, education, um, of course, also promotion and, yeah. and, and, and I'm sure there's bands out there that <coughs> exist solely on YouTube, probably, you know. Um, well, I, don't, I don't know if you've come across Wolfpack in your... Wolfpack? Yeah, yeah. no. So they're uh, an American band who have kind of come to prominence by making videos, mm. um, but they're phenomenal musicians and the music is great. But initially the idea was they were a studio band and they just put some videos up there kind of thing. But as a result of that, now they're touring to live audiences. Great. You know? The demand has grown. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's now, it's a way of um, reaching your niche Fan base, yeah, right. I think. You know, even even Snarky Puppy, to some extent, right. the the live filming of their album uh, um, "Tell Your Friends" that was what kind of really broke them to the mm. broader audience and stuff like that. So it's yeah, it's a it's a double edged sword, I think. Yeah, you know, or it can be used for for great with great power comes great responsibility. I guess that kind of thing. You know, yes. like it can be it can be the way to to reach your audience and, and grow your career but I don't think it should be anybody's initial focus like these right. bands had been at it for um, 10 yes. years yeah. years and years until you know and then it was just like everything kind of lined up and that was sure. it you know I'm sure other bands who've been doing videos and stuff and then it was a gig that set them off onto this trajectory mm. um, but that's I think that's it's a success story that's yeah nice. there's yeah. success story. I think it's yeah. I think it's definitely something that the younger generation coming through are going to be you know it's going to be second nature to them, you know, mm. live, live streaming on mm. Facebook and yep. Instagram and all this kind of stuff. It's an, it's an interesting time, but yeah, like you say, it doesn't um, make up for the fact that you still have to have, uh, you know, just because you have the information doesn't mean you have the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I held up my CD before, I don't know. How many of your audiences were actually own a CD player? You know, this is this well, is. I had, I you have one. I got, but I had. Oh yeah, you've got external. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Several, well, this yeah. is a thing because you know everyone's listening on their phones these days. Cars well, don't have CD players. Oh, yeah. I bet the old ones do, I suppose. But the you know the new new MacBooks don't. Yeah. Um, Not for a long so time. So this this is. Is that available as a download? Digital. It is. It is. Bandcamp. Bandcamp. Of course. So, Which is yeah, great. Bandcamp yeah. is great. Yeah. yeah. Bandcamp is great, and it's a completely viable way. Um, you can download full quality, not just MP3s, but full quality um, exactly. AAC yeah. files, whatever. And artwork and yeah. whatever else you want to give your fans. Yeah, exactly, which is a fine way. It avoids Australia Post. You know? Yeah. Uh, but, so, yeah. But it also gives you, um, 
you know, everybody who buys it, you get their email address. Yeah, essentially. So you collate a database of people who go, I like what you do. Yes. And then they can follow you and promote the next one. Exactly. Next thing you you send an email. Hey, a new album. Oh, cool. Straight to that person's inbox. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful thing once again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, man, I reckon um, I don't want to keep you much longer. I know it's a yeah, beautiful sure. day outside. It is beautiful. And, uh, it is great. Do, but that was uh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Shall I play a song out? Please do. Yeah? Yeah. We got time? Absolutely. Okay. A, sh- a quick lullaby. Must be bedtime where you guys are. <laughs>
Beautiful, man. Thanks for having me, Craig. Lovely. That was great. Guys, thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.